Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Good, you may be seated. So hey, just before we get started with uh, uh, this morning's message, I need to solve a little bit of a mystery. Some of you are probably wondering why for the second week in a row, I'm wearing my Gospel Hope uh, Kids team shirt. Uh, It is not due to a wardrobe malfunction. Uh, This is intentional. Um, So here's the deal. Um, uh, Last week, I had the wonderful opportunity of serving um, in Gospel Hope uh, Kids. And uh, I had the first through third graders. Yay, my my, my road dog uh, there, my wing person um, in our Nara. So it was a a great time. And uh, while I was there, I made a couple of um, observations. And I want to share them with you and kind of follow that with an appeal. Uh, Observation number one, it was was incredibly fun, even if you don't think you like kids, right? It has nothing to do with that. Um, We as a church have an incredible responsibility, not just providing a space for them to be kept while the big people in here are listening to God's word, but we have a great responsibility to disciple um, our youngest members of our church. And if you remember, about two weeks ago, I believe it was Father's Day, and also Family Dedication Sunday, you saw the significant growth in little ones that we've had at our church. And that, has, that blessing has produced two dynamics. So we have an increase in attendance in Gospel Hope Kids, but at the same time, the mothers who have brought us these blessings are also on maternity leave. And so that has resulted in kind of uh, a little bit of a gap. We have about six to 10 open serving opportunities that'll be uh, kind of on us come the month of August. And the reason we'll have those is because some of the people who serve there are also um, high school graduates who will be going away to college. Now, my next observation. I looked at the roster to see kind of logistically where the gaps are coming from to see if I can create a solution. And as I was going through the list, it leaped out to me that most of the names of the people who serve in Gospel Hope Kids are women. It's our sisters. And so not all, but most. I would say about 90%. And so as a result of that, uh, I want to make an appeal to our men to get directly involved in the discipleship of our children. Um, I want us as a church to be able to make a statement. You know, we are, we are a church that desires to uh, display the reconciling hope of the gospel, and that manifests itself in diversity, uh, but not just diversity in gender and ethnicity, but it also manifests itself in diversity in how we view our respective assignments. I want us to be a church that takes the lead in sending a message that while childbearing may be an exclusively female enterprise, child-rearing is not. So we need men involved. So um, at the end of today's message, um, I would love to fill those six to ten opening spots that we'll have by the month of August with some of our men. I'd love to see all men fill some of those slots to try to help us create some diversity in our serving team for Gospel Hope Kids. So you'll have the entire sermon to pray about that in the midst of taking your notes. Because what will happen is Travis will come back up, and as a part of our send-off, he'll actually ask uh, those who are interested in signing up, or he's just, just to explore the idea, regardless of how many weeks you are available. Um, we want you to at least explore the idea and attend this training that we have coming up uh, in the first week of August. So, so again, that's kind of what's on my heart, and that's the reason that I'm wearing this shirt, just to kind of bring uh, some additional awareness to a need that we have there uh, as a ministry. We're good? All right, good. So, um, and then whether or not I wear this shirt next week will be an indication of how many volunteers we got. (laughs) Let's pray. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. We recognize, Lord God, the weighty and incredible task of opening our mouths and representing you. Your servant James said, not many of us should desire the role of teacher because there is a higher level of scrutiny, Lord God, on us in our uh, kind of innate ability to lead people astray, Lord God, if we don't do it well. And so, Lord God, we, I hand myself over to you and ask that you would move me completely out of the way. I ask, oh God, that the weight that I feel, Lord God, I would just place it back on you and be totally reliant upon your spirit, Lord God, to lead your people through your word. I ask, oh God, for all of us that our hearts would be in our hands and we would hand them over to you and that you would safeguard us from distractions and the different things that would rob us of our ability to hear from you clearly. And uh, when we leave here today, we will have learned something about you and your Christ uh, Lord God, that would radically change the way we live and represent you in the earth. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you heard, we have been walking through the book of Haggai, and we're talking about brokenness and beauty, and specifically how the Lord can bring beauty out of brokenness. Just for those of you who are kind of newly merging into the series, uh, the book of Haggai is only second in its uh, brevity to the book of Obadiah, but the primary problem is that the, the nation of Israel has been totally broken. As a nation, broken morale, uh, broken politically, they have lost their stellar role uh, uh, within the ancient Near Eastern world, they are returning from Babylonian captivity with the task of rebuilding the temple. And their temple has also been destroyed, which means that their identity nationally, the unique fellowship and covenant that they have with God, has also been besmirched, has been decimated. So uh, many of you can identify, without having to get into a time machine, what it might be like to feel like you are members of Israel during Haggai's time. I mean, consider, if you will, any of those moments in life, either due to your own personal repeated cyclical sin or because of circumstances happening outside of your life, you have felt incredibly distant from God. And even though you intellectually knew it wasn't true, you doctrinally knew it was not true, you biblically knew that it was not consistent, man, did it sure feel like God was no longer hanging out with you. Has anybody ever felt that? So we know that feelings of brokenness that may not match our theological reality are real. And so Israel, who at this time sees the actual rubble and ruins of their place where they went to meet with God, it is destroyed and now they've been tasked with rebuilding it. As you heard in earlier weeks in the series, during their period of rebuilding, they actually started and then took a 15-year hiatus and stopped building it. And then the Lord sent the prophet Haggai to encourage them to recommence with the building project. And so... There's a phrase that I want you to just kind of keep in the back of your mind that if you've been around Gospel Hope for any duration of time, you've heard us use this phrase. You've heard us say something like, we don't use people to get ministry done, but we use ministry to get people done. What I think you're going to see in today's text is that kind of activity, a real biblical live example of how the Lord actually uses ministry to get people done, even though on the surface it looks like they are the ones doing the ministry or doing the building. By show of hands, how many people have been in the city of Atlanta, either as a visitor or resident, this will kind of be a catch-all, you've been here for, let's just say, two years or less, show of hands, two years or less. How many of you by a show of hands have been here for, let's just call it five years or less? Yeah, we're getting there. How many of you have been here between, uh, let's just say 10 and 15 years? You've been in the city for 10 and 15 years. 
Any, uh, any 20s? Anybody been in the city for 20 years? Yep, yep, yep. Anybody been in the city for over 30 years? Yeah. So regardless of how many times you put your hand up this morning, if you have driven for five miles in any direction in metropolitan Atlanta, it is invariable that you have seen caution cones, shifting lanes, cranes, machinery, barrels, and barricades, and all these other indicators of ongoing construction or reconstruction, have you not? Now, the longer you've been here, you've been able to witness something else. You've been able to actually witness the progress of those projects. You remember maybe the street that you grew up on or near was extremely narrow. Now it's incredibly wide and able to accommodate all of the traffic that now passes through that area. Maybe when you came five years ago, um, this place was just filled with construction, but now some of your favorite restaurants and really niche spots that you love to hang out in are now all over the place. And so you and I are becoming people who are appreciating some of the reconstructive efforts that are going on in our cities. But do you know that there are people, and I've lived in some of these cities, that don't enjoy the reconstructive efforts because the reconstructive efforts aren't bringing any beauty or benefit. It's just really a lot of patchwork. So a signature of a growing and sprawling metropolis is its traffic and its construction. This burdensome sense of having to honk, blow, speed up, slam on brakes, maneuver, swerve, and buy new CV axles, it's actually a part of the beauty of progress. And so today from our, our text, I want to talk to you about exactly that, how the Lord uses reconstruction and actually the reconstruction of our beliefs to produce or make us a better reflection of himself. The Lord is reconstructing our beliefs to make us a better reflection of himself. And trust me when I tell you that that reconstruction process is inconvenient, sometimes burdensome, and in many cases may feel downright painful. But in cities and in places and in the lives of people where there is actual progress, there is a degree of reconstruction that is always needed. And so today, again, we're going to look at the Lord and what it is exactly he is reconstructing. What about their beliefs is he reconstructing in the lives of Israel during the ministry of Haggai as they themselves are rebuilding the temple? What is God building in them, his people? If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of Haggai of uh, chapter 2, beginning with verse 10. As we pull verse 10 or so up on the screen, I want you to also think about this larger idea of the Lord reconstructing our beliefs to make us a better reflection of himself. That's not a new motif. We saw God making us in his image in the Garden of Eden, therefore we should be a reflection of him in some way. And then we fast forward into the New Testament and we hear the scriptures say that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the Lord has from, from end to end in the scriptures, the game plan of redemption has always been about reconstruction in the lives of his people to get us to look more like him. So this is not a novelty. This is a part of the greater narrative of scripture. So when we look at verse 10 in Haggai chapter 2, it says this, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. We're going to pause there for a second. What's so special about this particular segment? What I found to be interesting about this particular passage of scripture is that in the New Old Testament, the prophet's job is not a super positive. 
The prophet's job is not a super positive. As a matter of fact, there are four basic ingredients in a prophet's job, and they are the following. Number one, to convict of sin. Number two, to call people to very specific acts of repentance. Number three, to caution them of impending judgment if they don't turn from their current sin. And then number four, this is a positive, to cultivate within them an anticipation for the Messiah or whatever God's redemptive plan. So again, the four uh, main objectives of an Old Testament prophet's job description is to convict of sin, call to specific acts of repentance, caution them of impending judgment, and to cultivate an appetite for the coming Messiah. Now, three out of four of those objectives in the prophet's job description are kind of uh, uncomfortable. But do you know what Haggai's name means? Festival. What's festive about that? What's festive about getting in my face and telling me that I've displeased the Almighty God? What's happy or exciting about that? It's like, it's like having a, a birthday party and you invite everyone over and says, hey, when you get there, uh, we've got a poodle, we got the, we got a puppy named Tiny and you get there and it's a 130 pound pit bull. Nothing tiny about that, right? So, so Haggai's name is, is, is quite the contrast from actually the role that he comes to play. And so in the Old Testament, when a prophet came to town, Primarily, every single book in the Bible that you read where a prophet spoke to God's people, he is doing exactly those four things. He is calling out sin, bringing people to conviction, drawing them to specific acts of repentance, and then at the end of his message, cultivating an appetite for the coming Messiah. So what do we learn from this as New Testament believers? Because it seems like that's a uniquely Old Testament enterprise, the work of the prophet, right? Well, number one, I believe that the Lord is actively reconstructing our perception of his word. I believe that in contemporary times, our points of entry into the word of God are largely devotional, largely promise-based, largely comfort-based. All of those are realities of God's word, but it's not the total picture. In other words, God's word works in our lives in this incredible way to convict sin, to call to specific acts of repentance, to caution us for of the impending judgment of God, and to cultivate in us a desire for Christ. The Lord is still doing that same work, even if not through the active office of a prophet. Because if you look at those four elements of the prophet's job, it's the same description that Jesus gave us in John chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit would perform to convict the world of its sin, to remind you of all the things that I said, and to cultivate and to continuously ground you in fellowship with me and my Father. Do you remember Jesus' conversation around that in John 14? And so this whole idea of God allowing there to be this sense of conviction and call to repentance, it is very much a function of the Holy Spirit. So God has not, while he may have no longer used the office of a prophet as we see it in the Old Testament way, still for us as believers today, this four-part job description is still on the table. And it's the Holy Spirit who has taken up the task. But then the Bible goes on to tell us in 2 Timothy, a very popular passage that we will all know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished or equipped for every good work. So even the word of God itself has this multifaceted function of laying foundation, reproving, correcting, and equipping, and making us more ready to serve the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. So while this is an Old Testament passage, it's not an Old Testament only idea. 
And I believe that the Lord wants to reconstruct our perception of his word. What do I mean by reconstruct? If we really listen to and watch ourselves as we read God's word today, we are oftentimes looking for things that will smooth out the rough spots of life, make us feel better about where we are. In other words, we want the gospel's version of self-help. Like, I want something to speak to me positively. And the Bible does, but it doesn't lunge in always with the positive only because there is a great work of reconstruction that needs to take place. Notice what the Bible says about its own self in 2 Timothy. It lays a foundation of doctrine, which is a foundation of teaching. And then from doctrine, it proceeds to reproof and correction. The Bible recognizes that if we take it seriously, there are going to be things that we don't like that have to speak to other parts of our lives that we've grown accustomed to. The same job that Haggai, the prophet, may have, play, may have played. But we should still take great joy in that. It is a festive occasion to know that God cares enough to rebuke, to reprove, to correct, and to lay new foundation in our lives. I talked earlier about having lived in a city that didn't always take pride in its construction because its construction was not the indicator of progress. I lived in a city that was regularly impacted, filled and glittered with potholes. And whenever I saw construction, it was typically two guys with a shovel of some kind of hot tar mixture filling in a hole that they would pack it down softly, move to the next one, and literally one week later as I passed through that area, it would be another pothole because it was a, it was a repair, it wasn't a reconstruction. In many cases, I believe that that's what we desire from God's word if we're not careful. Not you, but also me, not just you alone. It is our natural inclination to just want the word of God to come and fill the potholes in my life to make life a much smoother ride and not go through the inconvenience or the burden of radical reconstruction. And so the word of God is intended to work deeply in changing how I live, not just dull my senses to the undesirable situations in which I live. Be open, brothers and sisters, for the reconstruction of God's word. Do not turn a deaf ear to the work of reconstruction when you grab hold of these Bibles and when you re-listen to these podcasts and when you download your respective favorite preachers and pastors. Do not shy away from the word's work of great reconstruction because that is the great joy of God's work in our lives is to transform our beliefs, to reconstruct belief systems that we have to make us a more accurate reflection of himself and our character more like that of his son. Hebrews chapter 4, we're no strangers there. I'll give you one more just in case you believe I'm cherry picking. It says, for the word of God is living and uh, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and of the marrow, to the discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. This is the active work of God's word. And so as we go from page to page and cover to cover, and we want to shy away from the heavy-handedness supposedly of the Old Testament, guess what? The New Testament has the same function in our lives if we're really ingesting God's word and letting it do its fullest work. And so the Lord is reconstructing our perception of his word. Let's look at another text here. Beginning with verse 11... It says, thus says the Lord 
of hosts. This term Lord of hosts is used in the book of Haggai 14 times. You think it might be significant? It's also rendered in some text, Lord of armies. But what it means is that the Lord is captain or over the whole host of heaven, all the armies, all the angelic hosts. Does anybody remember that fateful scene of Jesus as he is being tried? And he says, don't you know that I could call like legions of angels and we would just completely just kind of rearrange the whole situation here? Uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus has at his disposal all of the angels of heaven. Have you ever read the book of Revelation and when it pans over to all of the angelic hosts, it was like an innumerable cast of creatures. So when the Bible reminds us 14 times over that our Lord is the Lord of hosts, it is drawing us into an appreciation or reconstructing our appreciation of his name. So second point, the Lord is reconstructing our perception of his word. He is also reconstructing our appreciation of his name. You remember in the Old Testament where the Lord told Israel in the Ten Commandments, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And as he would advance them through their various troubles and solve their problems, uh, certain faithful people would bow down in that moment and say, oh yeah, this is Jehovah Nisi, this is Jehovah Rapha, this is Jehovah Tishkenu. They would always uplift and expand and develop the name of God. God is serious about his name. You see, name is indicative of both authority and ability. In this particular passage, here it is, the Lord wants you to know that the following announcement, the following call to come back to building the temple, the following promises of future uh, uh, a building, and that he'll even preserve Israel throughout history, and we'll get there. Those promises are coming from someone who has both full authority and ability. For us as contemporary New Testament believers, the game has not changed. The Lord still wants to constantly reconstruct our appreciation, our appraisal, our adoration of his name. Young Zach Fowler, Fowler came to live with us two days ago. I don't ever forget, we were walking out to go get some wings, the holy bird draped in lemon pepper. And... Um, <laughs> We, uh, we were on our way out, and he asked me, he was like, hey, man, do you, do you, he says, do you know your neighbors? And I started to kind of recount. I was like, well, I know Eloise two houses down because she talks to me about her garden, and she gives me stuff, and I know this guy, and I don't know the people right here. And I started going through all the people in my neighborhood who I knew and what I knew about them. And then there was one particular name that really stood out to me, and it's this guy named Joe right across the street. And the reason that I know Joe's name, but I know more than his name, I know Joe, not just where he lives, what he drives, and what he does, or his schedule or when he comes in and out of the cul-de-sac, like I know almost everybody that way, right? Name, address, generic occupation, schedule. I know that about everybody on my street. But I know Joe because when I first moved into the neighborhood, there was a big group of guys that Joe invited to come over and help build out his landscaping. We all came with shovels and wheelbarrows, and we went over and just unloaded tons of landscaping stone and rock into, these, in, into this special fancy curbing that he had just bought. And because all of us constructed and worked together, it also worked within us a certain sense of togetherness. After that time, Joe and I exchanged contact information. I know what Joe does for a living. I know how many daughters he has. I know what grades they're in. I know what Joe's wife does. I know where Joe moved from. I know what Joe paid for his house. 
I know that Joe's parents wanted to live in my house before I bought it. I know that I can call Joe when I go on vacation and ask him to watch out for the house because, hey, man, I'm gone. And I know Joe will call me if he sees a strange vehicle in my house. Do you know why? Because I don't just know Joe's name, address, profession, and schedule. I know Joe. And I know his name. I believe that the Lord is calling us to reconstruct this idea of what we know about him. You see, Israel at the time, they knew the Lord. They knew his address, the temple. They knew the Lord's routines through the festivals. They knew the Lord's rules through the commandments. They knew his comings and goings, like what it meant for him to be there and to not be there. But did they know the Lord like I knew Joe? Did they know his predilections? Did they know his tendencies? Did they know his preferences? Did they know his deepest desires, his dislikes? Did they know his passions? And so when we talk about the Lord is reconstructing an, our appreciation of his name, this is exactly what the Lord would draw all of us into, to knowing his name, not just theologically, not just traditionally, not just routinely, not just scheduled in a scheduled way, that we would know his name in a way that is mentioned to us in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and bestowed on him a name that is above everything every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the name of God is big, big business, and it is a serious, serious deal. It is not just a tattoo, it is not a t-shirt, it is not a service time, it is not a favorite song, it is not a nice message or a great podcast, but it is the actual authority and the brand under which God does business with his people and relationship. The Lord is actively, through some of the burns of our lives, reconstructing our appreciation of his name. And so... Let's read a little bit more. Beginning with verse 12. This is the Lord's question to Haggai to ask the priest. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches uh, with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contrast, oh, excuse me, by contact with the dead body touches these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and everything that they offer there is unclean. There's a couple of life lessons that the Lord is getting ready to hand out here in this particular passage as he begins to revisit for them. And he says five times in the next few verses, five times in this short chapter, the Lord says, consider. Consider your condition previously when you went out and chopped wood, burned it, and couldn't get warm. Remember when you gathered grain and still didn't have enough. Consider in your past, all of your efforts never seemed to fully satisfy. You got money, put it in holes with pockets. I want you to look back and consider those things, and then I want you to consider what I'm going to do forward. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to remedy all of those broken pieces. Well, what is the Lord restructuring in that? I believe that the Lord is reconstructing, in verses 12 and following, the Lord is reconstructing our application of the faith. 
He's reconstructing our application of the faith in three very basic ways. Now notice that the inquiries that Haggai was tasked to ask of the priest was about holiness, worship, obedience, and then there's another piece that's coming around faithfulness. Now I want you to think, uh, let me ask you this, how many of us have used the word holiness outside of a church conversation? (laughs) Not really, right? But do you realize that there are many terms and ideas that should be pervasive in our lives, but we have compartmentalized them to only to our church convo? Now, I'm not, this is not a vocabulary quiz where I'm going to ask everybody to stand up and just say, can you spell holiness and can you define it? And then from now on, I want you to start using it on the job. But holiness is this. It is, it is not uh, a call to moral superiority, but it is a call to mirror the purity of God. Um, anybody ever been to the uh, doctor's office? Been to the doctor's office? Been to the doctor's office by raise of hands. All right. There you go. Been to the doctor's office. Is anybody just kind of in your panning in one of your doctor's offices, maybe a dentist's office, you looked over on the countertop while you were waiting for them to come in. You're in there in your one-piece back-out um, outfit waiting for the remainder of the exam, and you were just looking around being nosy, right? You see instruments. You see signs. You're like, what is all this? And you saw that see-through, that glass container filled with cotton balls. Have you seen this? You seen the container filled with cotton balls? You ever wonder what was special about those cotton balls? Like, are those standard issue cotton balls? Or those are medically uh, uh, prepared cotton balls? Have you ever wondered? Now, I have, uh, again, some inside uh, angle that maybe these cotton balls aren't necessarily any different from standard issue Walmart cotton balls. But here's the deal. They had better be because they are now set aside for a specific use in our lives. In other words, when you see cotton balls at the doctor's office, you have a different expectation than the one you see at the nail salon. Do you not? Exactly. Well, you and I are cotton balls. And we are called to be used in a way that honors God. To live a life that is separate, that is holy. Because the, the degree to which we live a holy life is, is what sets us up to be most fully utilized of God. You see, this conversation between Haggai and the priests about holiness was, here are people who are just coming into the temple, and they're just, uh, you're bringing meat, but does that necessarily make anything else around it holy? And the answer is no. We have a call to holiness, and again, holiness, just in case you thought it was moral superiority, a holier-than-thou mentality, a nose in the air, or a, a list of sinlessnesses you could check off and hand to your neighbor and say, I'm better than you, real holiness is not a call to moral superiority, but it is a call to moral purity. Because when we live holy, we make a statement to God that I heard you clearly. You hear me? When we live a life of holiness, we say back to God with our lives, Lord, I heard you clearly. How many of us have in our deepest times of prayer and brokenness wanted God to step in and say something and we struggle to hear from him and we wish he would speak more loudly? But often I want to caution you and I want to encourage you this, that if we have not been listening or learning how to hear from God in the most basic way when he calls us to be holy, we may find ourselves in a crisis when we are praying and we need him to, 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 to come in in a more robust way in our lives. Learn how to hear God's voice through living a life of holiness. That's when we say to God, Lord, I will do what you say with what you've told me. The Bible continues. He also tells Haggai, or Haggai also tells the priests, that if 
the people who previously brought these offerings or, or did things that were unclean into the temple, that if they'll, if they'll do what they're supposed to do, now that they've decided to obey me, so there's a whole section here where he says, listen, I'm going to applaud the fact that you all are now rebuilding the temple. I want you to consider before you started building the temple, he says, consider five times, consider before you started rebuilding the temple, no matter all of your efforts came to naught. But now that you've decided to obey me, all of your efforts will be blessed. There is an undeniable correlation and God is rebuilding not only our concept of holiness, but he is also rebuilding our connection between worship and obedience. Does anybody remember math? Yeah? Anybody remember that? There is a reciprocal relationship between worship and obedience. And here's how that reciprocity works. We who believe, so who we believe he is affects what one does. Who we believe God is affects what one does. In other words, our obedience is a direct reflection of who we believe God is. Has anybody officially disobeyed their parents ever before? Anybody, right? Typically, that disobedience was born out of a place that you didn't think that the person who told you to do it was really that serious. Or you thought you could maybe get around the consequences. Our obedience is a direct declaration of who we believe God is. If you believe that he's just a guy who hands out rules, then you, you view obedience as just something that you can navigate around as long as you still get the correct results on the back end. But our obedience is always a reflection of who we believe God is. And guess what? Who we believe God is will always affect what we do. The Bible goes further. Verses 20 through 23, follow this with me. It says, and the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and say, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down and every one by their sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will make you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So in the Lord's promise that he is going to bring down nations, that he is going to go back to doing the business of delivering Israel in a mighty way, anybody remember, anybody remember back in the book of Exodus when the waters came crashing down on Israel's enemies? What happened? People on chariots were being toppled and folks were turning their own swords on one another, utter chaos and confusion. This is the signature of how God delivers and protects his people. And he says that if you, now that you've decided to obey me, you're going to see me do something in the future that's going to be fully reflective of your great past and legacy of my deliverance in your life. But God is going further with this. He's looking extremely far forward. He says, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the signet ring was a ring that had, obviously, and some kind of indicia on it that, that, that was a symbol of that person's authority. But it wasn't just jewelry. It was something that they would take and put into hot wax or moist wax um, uh, in order to indicate their seal. So when they would send correspondence to a faraway person and they received it, they would know that that was the genuine article. 
He says that I will keep you, Zerubbabel, as close as my signet ring. You will be a signature of my historic authority and ability. He is reconstructing Israel's appreciation and desire and confidence in his historic covenant. Their confidence in covenant is critical. Because what hope would they have to build and to serve and to honor God? Because right now they believe that God has completely abandoned them. Right now they're operating on the impression that God no longer wants to deal with them. But he is reminding them of his historic covenant and how moving forward he's going to bring kingdoms down based on the, the idea of Zerubbabel. In other words, the throne will never be absent of a ruler that bears God's anointing. If you fast forward to the book of Matthew, Zerubbabel is actually in the lineage of Jesus. So this is a great signature of hope. But it's also a great signature of hope, not just for the Israelites. It's one for us too. You see, this whole language of God's signature, a signet ring or a seal, he also made that promise to New Testament believers when he said that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that he'll give us the Holy Spirit as a seal. An indication of his ongoing authority and presence and ability to keep us. The Lord is still in the business of expanding his name. The Lord is still in the business of reconstructing our perception of his word, reconstructing our appreciation of his name, and reconstructing our application of the faith. There are things in our lives that we may have left, you know, by the wayside, left them in our Bibles. I don't know how to bring these terms or these ideas forward, but the Lord wants to call us to live a life of great holiness. He wants us to live a life that is fully reflective of the reciprocal relationship between worship and obedience, and they never become separate. They don't just become the songs that we sing, but they actually become the lives that we live. The Lord wants there to be a people who have his signature, that have his signet, that have some clear indication on their life that he has sealed them and he has chosen them and made them his. Well, that signature, that seal comes when we place our confidence in the covenant of God through the person of Jesus Christ. We don't necessarily use the language of covenant a lot in contemporary means. But what the Bible tells us is that in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord has created a covenant with all those that would believe. And the blood of Jesus is the basis of that covenant because we can't bring anything to the table. We can bring no ink. We can bring no works. We can bring no paper. We can bring no goods. We can bring nothing to the table that would solidify the covenant because God could swear by no greater. He decided to guarantee the covenant himself. That's a beautiful thing, ladies and gentlemen, because regardless of how many pieces you may have broken your life into, the Lord is saying, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up. I still see beauty because he made you. And so regardless of where you are in your relationship with the Lord, maybe you don't have one at all. The appeal is this. All of our lives are broken in some way, shape, or form. And none of us have the ability to effectively piece ourselves together perfectly. But the maker does. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes even further to say that God isn't just gluing us back together, but it says that those of us that have come to know Christ, we have been made brand new. So when you come to Christ, you're not just some new and improved version of your previous self. The Lord says you're made brand new. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful truth. 
And so I pray today that if there's anybody here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, your life is broken to pieces and you're the person responsible for doing the breaking. That does not disqualify you from coming to God looking for what beauty he can extract from your life or what beauty he can bring through the recreation of your life. You may be here today and you think your external circumstances are the ones that have broken you utterly and completely. And God says, it doesn't matter where the brokenness comes from. If you hand it over to me, I am a master potter. Bring me that life. I won't just fix you. I want to make you again. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we come before your throne, we recognize that there are things that have been a part of our lives for as long as we can remember. Some things we've been able to kind of clean up through discipline. Things we've been able to kind of avoid through putting distance between ourselves and that particular temptation. But Lord God, there always seems to be something in our lives that reminds us of our utter brokenness. And we pray that today, oh God, that you would point to that brokenness and we wouldn't shy away from that difficult sense of conviction. We would hear your call to come and to receive your son, Jesus Christ the one who you gave, the one who, who you broke on our behalf so all who trust in here would no longer have to live a life of brokenness. Lord God, I pray that you would stir confidence in the hearts of those that desperately need you today. That we would place faith in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. That we would hand over our lives and recognize that we have irreconcilably broken them and only you can fix them. Lord God, that we would repent, that we would turn from our self-reliance to trying to pull the pieces together ourselves and we would turn toward you. That we, oh God, would take great joy, even if we know you, if we know you, Lord God, and our lives are broken, we would take great joy in that open door of mercy and incredible repentance that you have given us, that we might experience the joy of your presence once again. Lord God, regardless of where we are, we ask that you would just move on our hearts, even where we're sitting, we would be bold enough to cry out to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you just by way of application, uh, if there's an area in your life, again, a struggle that you've never handed over to the Lord or a struggle that you've handed over to the Lord a million times and it still seems to be broken, I want to encourage you not to stop going before the Lord. He has not given up on you. He has not shunned you. He is not stiff-arming you because that's still a thing in your life. But I do want you to know that if he has sealed you and you are indeed his, that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work within you and can bring power to overcome whatever that is. I want you to be mindful of what that is and make it your case to go before the Lord. I would also ask number two, that if you know someone else who is broken, would you be in earnest prayer for them that through their brokenness that they would experience the reconstructive work of God? Amen.